Do you think there's a place for, or what is the place for, say, utopian fiction? I, I've spent the last couple of years really struggling with the insistence that I talk about hope <laughs> a lot of the time. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin. And I'm Troy. You're going with the with the monos- or the, the, the single name now, huh? Yeah, I'm just going to try to throw you off, you know. I'm going to change it up every week. We'll see, you know, <laughs> you know who, who knows how it's going to come out. Um, this week, we're excited to say that we've got a guest on we haven't had a guest since we've done our reboot since we had our long hiatus and it's Macon Holt who um it was I, I mean after the conversation or during the conversation I realized we realized that it was like three ish years three plus years since the last time we had Macon on wow that's crazy it has been that long yeah <laughs> fucking hell man I know. So it's going to be great. We're going to be talking with Macon about um, an essay that he recently published in Periscope, which is a Danish journal, but it's an English language Danish journal. Or I don't know if the whole journal is, but this essay is anyway. And it's called Approaching the Sonic Shimmer of Popular Music. And Troy, can you tell people, what give, give them the, the elevator pitch. What's the conversation cover? Well, I mean, the conversation covers everything, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it, it sure does. Everything from, um, I guess, the connections between art and politics and subjectivity and identity. So, mm. yeah, fairly ambitious. but um, Which is kind of all the stuff that we're interested in anyway, right? Yeah. The connection between those things especially. Yeah. So it was a great conversation, and um, I believe we have the essay linked down in the show notes, um, or at least we have, we've got info. Look down in the show notes, and you'll get some info. One, to Macon's podcast. He does a film podcast, and hopefully, probably, to the essay. Um, I think we're just waiting to see if it's open access, but just look down in the show notes. Give it a click. Give it a, give it a read. Um, it's actually a really short essay. It's only a handful of pages, and he uh, talks about some films and talks about some music and talks about some theory and it's really good shit and it led to a great conversation so uh that's coming up in our main segment uh troy any housekeeping stuff yeah we just want to mention that if you want to support us uh, in a tangible way you can do so via patreon that's our website is patreon.com slash owls at dawn uh you get access to goodies there um the ability to vote for our next patreon sponsored episode which um is up right now and nominations for that and very soon We'll decide on some candidates and then have a vote and our pa- where our patrons will vote on our next patron-sponsored episode. So if you want to get access to that, go to our, uh, the Patreon website, patreon.com slash Dawn. We also want to shout out those who have recently subscribed to the Patreon. So one, we have Joan. Uh, thank you, Joan, who signed up for the Democracy Motherfuckers tier to vote Ooh. on the next patron-sponsored episode. And also, um, username Dukakis, Dukakis. I don't know if that's oh. um, the, the, the former politician, Michael Dukakis. Michael Dukakis. <laughs> Possibly. Um, I don't want to accuse you of anything, Dukakis, but uh, that's your username. <laughs> so you chose that for a reason. <laughs> so thank you, Joan and Dukakis, for signing up for the Patreon. We greatly appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you. And I guess maybe we'll say this. Next episode, we will announce... Wait, should we have the poll? Should we put the poll up? Do we have a handful of, of things to choose from and select a poll? We do have a handful. Um, maybe we'll give it a couple more days uh, after the release okay. of this episode for some more people to nominate some topics and then we'll come up with the, the poll of four or five candidates. Great. So get out there, rush over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn if you are already a patron in particular because then we want to hear your ideas. What do you want us to talk about? Um, and then if you're not a patron and you want access to this, head over, democracy motherfuckers. What is it, two bucks a month for that one? For that one, yeah. Yeah, two bucks a month, and you can get access to recommending um, topics for future episodes. So head over and give us uh, give us your ideas, and then what we'll do is we'll take like three of them that we think are kind of like the most interesting, and then we'll do a poll, and then y'all will vote, and then we will do the episode. So sick, man. Sweet. So before we start talking to Macon, we do have to start off the way we start off every podcast, and that's with a shitty minute. For those who don't know, the Shitty Minute is the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So, Austin, what's got you down? The, 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 there's just not enough time in the day. That's what's got me down. But I don't mean this. I don't mean this in the sense of like, oh, I've got too many projects and I'm just too busy. No, no. I mean like objectively, ontologically days need to be longer like this bullshit who decided that we were going to have this weird fucking stupid cycle where it's like 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark and then our bodies would get tired like why can't we be nocturnal animals you know why can't we be both daytime and nocturnal animals why do we need to sleep for seven eight hours a night right like why did we evolve in this way that's bullshit there's literally not why couldn't the the rotation of the earth be slower why couldn't it have been 36 hours? Why was it a 24-hour cycle? You know what I mean? Why Why are things the way they are? They should have been more so that we could have more time to do cool shit. That's what I'm saying. And I'm not even saying so that we can burn ourselves out. Now, of course, you know, the skeptics out there are like, that would just give more time to, like, you know, capital power <laughs> to exploit people. I get it. I know. I know. Of course, that's what would happen. But what I'm hoping for is an alternative universe where the days are literally longer, and that just gives us more time to, like, do cool shit and chill and, like, maybe sleep more and whatever else. But, like, the days are just longer, you know? Like, just make the days longer. L- not, not, not in any metaphorical sense. Literally. That's my shitty minute. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. This is there's multiply ambiguous here. Um, do we just want the daytime to be longer, or because you also mentioned part of what we could do with more time is sleep, so yeah. that may make sort of awake time less than normal. Like, is it just more time to do activities? Well, I mean, the concept like, of the day is relative to our particular day cycles that we have, right? So let's just change the whole – let's just create a whole new universe where the the conception of day is totally changed. Where, I don't know, for, as an example, it's 43 hours and within those 43 hours, it could be light or dark. But we just don't get tired until we choose to be tired and then we choose to just <laughs> sleep, you know? This, this this introduces a funny little philosophical problem that I've had some discussions with some people about that I've, I've had trouble understanding. There's this notion some people have that um, in order for any sort of activity to be intelligible, so not even just meaningful, like intelligible as an activity, there has to be thresholds. Um, okay. Like constitutive thresholds. So like the, the basic idea is I was reading this, this book that was arguing that like death is necessary for life to have meaning 
Because if we lived forever and there was no finality to it, then that lack of a threshold would would make no activity even intelligible. It's not even like a mm. like a nihilist argument that says that activity would no longer be meaningful. It's like it wouldn't even be intelligible as activity without a threshold. And so some people argue like similarly, in order for uh, activities, uh, mundane activities of any kind to be meaningful, there has to be thresholds of like day or a week or a month. Not, not specifically those ones, but just some thresholds, right? And like degrees of them to make activity more intelligible. And I've never understood that. Like that makes no sense to me. Is, is that is part of that what you're getting at? Like, like the thresholds that we have need to go away or maybe just yeah. radically changed? Yeah, they should all go away. Or they, yeah, radically changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to create new thresholds. That's yeah. Maybe that's it. You know. Like, but do what you if, think we need if, to even have them? Like all thresholds. Yeah. So no days, no weeks, no months. Calendar anarchy. Calendar nihilism. Actually, none of these yeah, things like actually that. exist. And then it's just, just, in perpetuity. Yeah, I okay. This is a very small example of this, but it it will illuminate. I don't know if there's any value in this, but like, you know how the Bible is broken up into books, and those books are broken up into chapters, and those chapters are broken up into verses, right? And mm-hmm. when I was younger, like I had no concept that that was just like that. Those were arbitrary thresholds that were established by editors, and then they just became canonized over time. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first started reading, like the letters, particularly of of Paul, as letters, it changed everything because the thresholds that were imposed were totally yeah. transformed. And it was like, oh my God, but no, it means something different. You can't just go to verse seven of chapter blah, blah, blah. It was like, you have to read this thing as an organic thing. And it changed the whole meaning of the letter. And then maybe even that changed the whole meaning of the New Testament, which then changed the whole meaning of the can You know, like, so I think that there's something in that of like the transformation of the, the removing of the thresholds, you know, or like re rearranging thresholds that, that there's something interesting in that. I, I don't know what that means exactly with, with what we're talking about, but do you think there's any relevance to that? Yeah. I mean, even just to um, like prefigure some of the stuff we're going to talk about in our conversation with Macon, there's something about the thresholds that we have going down to uh, days, hours, minutes, seconds, that is a kind of attempt to control all of reality and all of our activity in the clock time is bullshit it is bullshit (laughs) we were so much more free when we just like had the minimum level of fundamental ontology of time was like day and night (laughs) right (laughs) yeah 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 could you imagine how different the world would be if you weren't sitting there constantly staring at the clock my partner and i we had to go to the laundromat last night to like uh, wash some sheets and, and shit like that and we're sitting there and she turns to me and she goes it was like i was like oh man i gotta go to the bathroom and it's like a five minute drive to the house but there were 18 minutes left on the machine and she's like is it weird that 18 minutes 
seems longer than 23 minutes because it's 18 minutes plus five minutes to drive. She's like, oh, so you got to wait 23 minutes. She's like, but it feels weird to me. She's like, 18 minutes, like staring at the number (laughs) of 18 seemed longer than the abstract conception of 23. And it like, it obviously is, it makes no sense, but yet it kind of does also make sense. There's something about like, what if we lived in a world where we weren't just staring at clocks, like constantly, you know, trying to discipline us and control us in particular ways. Yeah, to be fair, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just to be fair. This is my my forthcoming book. Um, to be fair, this is kind of literally what I do with finance. I say that the reason we don't understand finance is because the temporality of finance is based off of bullshit conceptions of time. And within the Marxian framework, within the Keynesian framework, and within even critical finance literature, that they all use a sort of formalist conception of time unwittingly in various different ways to various effects, but they all entrap us within some kind of like bullshit conceptions of how it is that we understand financial relationships and therefore financial relations of power. And some of them use that misunderstanding in order to capitalize and to create a system within that framework, which is then like, oh, cool. So then if we had an understanding of different conceptions of how financial temporality maybe does work on other planes of reality that are kind of like coexisting, then that'll actually give us impetus for how to like use finance in different ways other than out the, the the way that capital power exploits the control mechanisms of time within clock time or other formalist conceptions of time that it uses. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we could start a, a political program on time is bullshit. Like, I mean... Time is bullshit. If, if like, Republican um, uh, sort of calling card right now is, is, like, Taylor Swift is trying to control you via football <laughs> and... Like the democratic uh, program is uh, everything we don't like is China or Russia. Yeah. Then we could we could go as abstract as time is bullshit. I feel like it's just as divorced you, from you think- everyday reality as those things are. Will that be our campaign slogan? Um, so you know, Obama had hope and change, and Biden's was build back better. Trump's is make America great again. For Polidori and Smith, it's just time is bullshit. Yeah, we're gonna get rid of the clocks. There you go. <laughs> Get rid of the clocks. clocks are illegal now <laughs> I sorry I fi- that's like a high school remember when high school presidents would be like no more classes it's just gonna be recess vote for me for class president <laughs> I'm gonna ban homework if you vote for me and everyone would be like yeah <laughs> gotta vote yeah, for the stoner the, for your high school except president except this will work is the difference yeah <laughs> yeah okay uh, all right, sick. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get into the main segment and bring Macon on to talk about his essay and all kinds of other shit. Yeah, yeah. All right, so as we said at the top of the show, we have a guest on this week. It's our first guest since our reboot, since we've come back after our long hiatus, and it's a repeat guest, Macon Holt. What's up, Macon? Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back again. Um, it's, a, it's really a pleasure. Last last time you were on, you, we chatted about your book, and now we're going to kind of talk about an extension of your project. Um, it, the The article that you sent us for us to kind of like use as a as a way in is called "Approaching the Sonic Shimmer of Popular Music." So give us give us what's going on in your world. Where have you been since the last time we spoke? <laughs> How have your thoughts developed? What's your project at the moment? How's Copenhagen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all the stuff. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been like uh, four years since I was last on. I guess um, now, no, yeah. three, three and a half, three and a half. Yeah. So this is um, it's an article I wrote for a um, like 
art history magazine in Denmark called uh, Periscope. It, the article's in English. Um, and basically it's me trying to think about sort of trying to do a supercharged version of what I guess Stuart Hall would call um, conjunctive analysis, where you try and think about the ways in which different, seemingly different domains affect one, uh, one another, but also you as the um, appraiser of, um, of uh, you know, any kind of like artwork, any kind of like critical sort of uh, perspective one might have on it, you are also being affected by the work. So it's a way of, yes, conjunctive analysis on one hand, but also say, trying to engage with some of the implications of affect theory. And I do this mostly by talking about um, the imagery in um, Alexander Garland's uh, film, um, or Alex Garland's film, uh, Annihilation, his adaptation of the, the Thomas Vandermeer book, um, where he calls the the sort of area that the aliens have taken over in um in, in florida uh, the shimmer and it's with this kind of wonderful visual effect of refracted light and and everything within the shimmer is refracted not just light it's also dna it's also people's emotional um stability their sense of self um so you have like deers that you know suddenly be, uh, their antlers kind of crossfade into being um the branches on trees or you have bears that can somehow be imprinted with the screams of those they're, they're, they're devouring. Um, you have also like say tattoos from one uh, person in this, in the search party suddenly appearing on the arm of somebody else. Um, and so this to me seemed like a wonderful way in which to see how things affect one, each other, uh, one another on a very abstract kind of level. And so I kind of wanted to just use that as a kind of theoretical apparatus to think about what it is to be um, affected by sound, uh, affected by, you know, the circumstances under which we come into contact with popular music. Um, and, you know, that as a kind of more concrete example of a much larger kind of, I guess, sort of Spinozan project in a way, which is all in the background of the interconnectedness of things. Um, that's what that's about. But somehow I'm employed by Copenhagen Business School um, for the time being. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, while what's, they also... What's, what it, so what is the project at the business school and like how how does this work if it does inform that project i actually got in trouble for writing this when i should have been writing something on the project oh no oh no <laughs> um, but uh i mean in the fact in the sense that it's me trying to play with um the the same kinds of thinking around affect that um, we use when we do the research that i'm on at the business school so the project i'm on there is called operative fictions um and it's about how fiction affects real-world practices. And in particular, the one that I'm looking at is climate change fiction, but speculative fiction more broadly, and how it affects the labors of um, climate activists, uh, which, you know, we're getting closer to something, I think, pretty interesting with that. And, and this was certainly a stepping stone in my thinking, despite what <laughs> anyone may have thought at the time, um, into thinking through the the kind of ecological nature of subjectivity, um, which to me seemed to be the only reasonable way to think about how fiction influences action. If you're not thinking of a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence, like um, the way that 
uh, engineers and scientists are affected by sci-fi, for example. I mean, sci-fi has a much longer history. It has a much more integrated um, role in people's lives going back to childhood. Um, the kinds of dystopian speculative fiction that maybe some climate activists are coming into contact with, and particularly climate fiction, it's a bit too new. So the one-to-one -one correspondence doesn't really hold together. The more interesting thing to me has mm. been like how um, how it becomes this pervasive cultural um, reference point in the present. So I was also talking to some people who uh, work at like climate NGOs, and they were talking about how uh, when they started working, um, it was just like, okay, you go to work, you try and fix the environment, you go home and you just relax and watch something unrelated. But now when you go home, they turn on TV and then suddenly they realize, oh shit, The Last of Us is a fucking climate change show. <laughs> um, mm. Like I thought my zombie apocalypse thing was just going to be some sort of like, you know, horrific escapism, but it turns out it's literally about my job. Um, so the inescapability of that actually becoming quite oppressive for some people who are, um, who thought they could like get some professional distance. It's somewhat different with activists because they've taken it very personally in a very different way from the outset. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the project. And yeah, mm. uh, how, th how things have changed here since we last talked. Basically, like the business school is currently poor now, which is not great for a business school. Um, and they are also undergoing some government reforms where basically uh, like the Danish higher education sector is looking at the uh, UK and going, oh, it could be more like that. Um, so they are cutting programs left and right. So while there was, when I joined, there was a kind of quirky business school that had a philosophy department. These things are being cut back dramatically. Um, and the, the the dream of turning Copenhagen Business School into the Copenhagen School of Economics is dif disappearing and it's being replaced by a little uh, MBA factory. Hey, is, is Ola Bjerg still at the school? No, he... <laughs> Did he, he get fired because he was a supporter of Jordan Peterson? He got fired because he wouldn't wear a mask and he said it was um like <laughs> he said he said he said having a corona test um pass result like test result on your phone was the same as a quote Jew pass in Nazi Germany and he refused to do it. Oh my god, I literally <laughs> So that is that is so crazy. I had no idea about this, and so I, his his works on mm. um, like his book on poker, I think, is really good. But his book Making Money was really mm. kind of important for some of my own thoughts about money from a psychoanalytic angle. And then his book on Parallax of Growth was really interesting for me to understand. Like he calls it like mm. the debt drive of global capitalism yeah. which i thought is yeah. really interesting rather than death drive and and so his work was really interesting and i was when you were just talking i was like oh yeah i think Bjerg was at uh, copenhagen business school and i just googled him and it says fired professor and i just clicked this and a youtube video popped up that said that like i don't know i was like what the hell i had no idea about any of this <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah, divorce does crazy things to people um like he his most recent <laughs> His most recent book was um, is called Being a Man, which is a Heideggerian take on masculinity as a kind of distinct sort of Dasein, um, which is self-published. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> um, it's got like some, yeah, wow. it's a... Uh, it's a uh, yeah, so yeah, The Meaning of Being a Man is the uh, is this, his newest work that I know of. Um, yeah, like it's, it's kind of a shame, like I have very, lots of colleagues who knew him better than I 
I've, I never, I've never actually met him, but um, I've known, known by reputation, mostly the reputation that you're mes- uh, mentioning, Austin. And um, yeah, uh, they are sad to see what has happened. That's so strange. I yeah, I, I had no idea. I just remember that um, at least in the circles in which I've been for the past handful of years, he his name was getting more and more mentioned. And interestingly enough, it just kind of stopped. But I didn't know. Um, if it was just because, like, Making Money came out in 2014 now, and, mm. like, The Parallax of Growth is 2016. So I was like, oh, maybe it's just, like, it, it, it sparked up from, like, 2018 to 2020. But, uh, yeah, I mean, COVID changed a lot of things. So I, But that's really interesting. I had no idea. I was going to yeah. ask if he was a part of that research project that you're involved in, and I guess the answer would be no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um yeah, <laughs> he's uh, yeah, yeah. He he's 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 dis- yeah he's uh, disappeared into um into his own figuring out his own stuff. I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, God, Godspeed, Olabeard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um yeah so that's like the 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 basic uh, the basic overview of stuff is like so that's um, and to me I guess I'm yeah I'm also kind of like realizing now so I I wrote that I guess in the. In the, I wrote the first draft, I guess, in the fall of 2021, and it came out the fall of 2022. And I've been thinking a mm. lot since then about like what I was even like doing then. And yeah, I'm trying to like, kind of trying to work out like what parts of this project is me processing my own stuff in a much more healthy way than um, the aforementioned uh, academic, <laughs> and how that might relate to like larger social conditions. Because I think there's lots of stuff to do with. Um, Oh, like which is kind of an undercurrent within this work, dealing with anxiety about in some ways being affected, and that being, I think there I was kind of stating it in a kind of in a as a sort of uh, condition of say being a modern human, but realizing oh it's also a kind of a personal thing that I'm projecting onto <laughs> a larger cultural condition and trying to work out and negotiate mm-hmm. between these two things. Um, but that kind of yeah the, the the anxiety that one is not the effector but is is affected by things um, as a as a problem that's you know politically pretty salient I think um, and entirely I think relevant to any discussions of say ecological action as well that we are you know trying to understand ourselves as situated in some way but now i'm just rambling so i'll uh I'll, yeah <laughs> if you have opening remarks it'd be great yeah so what i'm what i'm curious to talk about a little bit here is um and the, and the paper talks quite a bit about the the ecological uh, situatedness uh sphere that you're talking about especially with relation to the the vandermeer book and um alex mm-hmm. carlin's movie annihilation right yeah. um you move from there to talk about in the title, right? Approaching the sonic shimmer of popular music. Mm. Um, and you talk a bit about childish Gambino, this is America, both the song and the video, mm. right? Can, yeah. can you say a little bit about why both what you think, um, the idea of the shimmer, its relation to popular music and popular music's ability to affect us, but also how you see that in the, in the larger sphere of, you know, situatedness in general and uh, yeah. affect in general. Like, why why popular music as being the locus of this of this discussion study? I think it's um, it's it's because of the immediacy and the commonplaceness of the experience and the dismissibility of it. So this is, I guess, kind of a, a theme that I picked up also in my book 
around popular music is that it it is something that both demands your attention and also demands to be accepted as um, something that's completely normal and um, completely uh, unquestionable as a reasonable form of entertainment um, that should be commercially viable to the kinds of industries that produce it and that should be able to um, access your consciousness um, as a kind of sonic wallpaper but um of course we also know from our own lives that the meaningfulness of various pieces of music can mean that something can come on in the supermarket and absolutely destroy you but you're not even aware of why until (laughs) say um three minutes in (laughs) and you're suddenly like feeling a bit bereft as you try to look at you know which which green leaf you should purchase to try and supplement your meal um the so then this, I think, is like the uh, actually a kind of scenario I tried to like um, articulate in an earlier draft of this, which was that it that um, you will be moving through the world and a whole lot of very intense energy is going to be is going is coming your way. And this is something we talked about, I guess, previously, that it's sort of laced with this intention that it makes you feel something. Um, and when I get to the kind of the, the Childish Gambino example, I try to like unpick the complexity of what that would be. Like, so we have the sorts of history that he's referring to, the kinds of um, stylistic choices he's making musically, um, but also the fact that it can be positioned um, in these locations speaks to a uh, a network of um, commercial entities with their own kinds of interests, a series of employees, all with pensions they're trying to save up within. Or I guess this in this day and age, kind of like um, casualized workforce that is trying to just make rent. Um, all of these forces are at play in the fact that you're getting to encounter this. So actually, this, the idea of Sonic Shimmer, I, I mentioned very briefly in passing in my book, is just a kind of like a, a throwaway remark, and I wanted to try and expand on it further because I thought this is this is where, where it's at, right? This is the um, the situation. Like we've um, decided to, uh, not decided, but like. Um, what has emerged is we have produced a kind of media ecology um, that is, I mean, obviously we're all going to be affected by our environments all the time, constantly. That's what it is to be in the world. But that we've um, decided to inject this kind of high intensity, uh, sort of almost kind of, you know, not in a not in a kind of judgmental way, but like sort of radioactive kind of um, substance into our effective um, infrastructure. I think is is pretty fascinating, and I think the the endlessness with which one could disentangle it, like this is like the um, I think the fifth time I've tried to write something about this is America because I get I get lost in the layers of what's going on there because I think you know you have to understand it in the context of Atlanta as a series and the kind of humor that works through um, and the kinds of referentiality that's that's playing within and to explain all that. Is, is like really intensely difficult. Like the musical structure is like a joke in that, in that it's, it's kind of setting you up, it's lulling you into this kind of um, almost sort of liberal kumbaya kind of discourse with a sort of, uh, I guess, you know, to be a little bit cruel, um, Paul Simon-esque appropriation of, say, West African sort of juju music <laughs> at the start. Um and then it just hits you with that trap, trap base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It goes like it goes like fuck off Paul Simon. And I'm not being I don't want to be too mean to Paul Simon. Paul Simon is great as well, but it's just you, you know There's what I mean. something yeah. interesting in in like Donald Glover's own like it, recounting of his narrative as kind of like 
not feeling like he was ever black enough, but then of course yeah. still not fitting in with like white kids when he was younger and to see him kind of work through that in his own art and then to make a song that is like an affirmation of the pathology of blackness in a really sort of like Afro pessimistic lens is really kind yeah. of an interesting also like concept, like point of tension of these convergences. No, in, in, in yeah, entirely. And the fact that, yeah, he's, um, you know, also like in terms of like the, the, the structure of his like own rap sections in this, like it is very close to uh, Bad and Bougie uh, by Migos, who yeah, are yeah. featured on the track as well as a kind of, I think, sort of gesture of like, yeah, I know. Um, so it's almost like he's appropriating it while making a comment yeah, yeah, through it. Um, but not, yeah, I don't think really in a bad way. I mean, I guess because it's... No, no, no. But I think there's, but I think it's like, there, I mean, that's exactly the tension, right? Like, because he's in this space where he's always described himself as not feeling black enough to be able to authentically express himself in this way. He's at once, is it an appropriative gesture or is it the kind of referenti- referentiality that is like germane to hip hop in general? And like, it's in that kind of interstitial space as well. Like, he's also aware, that it, and as he said about this, I think in a New Yorker article about um, Atlanta, like, he's aware he's making a show for white people to watch to feel like they know what's going on. And that's exactly what this conversation <laughs> is to a certain extent, right? <laughs> well, there's, there's like an interesting, and maybe this is different but there's like also an interesting set of tensions with the afro pessimist genre itself which is like you know a bunch of tenured academics at uc irvine or whatever Mm. in orange county that are that are writing about social death you know yeah um yeah and so there's also kind of an interesting there there is like a tension i think that maybe maybe it's like like, you know how the Buddha could only uh, kind of see outside the walls and experience death outside of his excess mm. when he was living in a place of privilege? Or like, you know, like uh, um, fucking Che was a doctor and had to go on a road trip to experience poverty before he could become a revolutionary. Like, maybe there's something interesting about that vantage of, of having relative privilege yeah. within a... a a context that then you you kind of you speak from that point of of conjunction and, and divergence and things like that well also yeah i mean you need the space of security for me to like you know do that kind of like reflection and writing like we were just talking before we started yeah, recording right about like how you, you have to be able to like just like take a breath um i mean i'm also thinking about someone like frank wilderson um like he's definitely paid his dues, I think, in terms of like his involvement in South Africa and stuff um, before going into academia. But I guess, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You have to be able to occupy that space of privilege to get the reflections down in a certain, in a, in a, in a you know, in a kind of just a practical way. Like you have to not be panicking um, to be able to actually get that done. Uh, I think I remember the late Diane Bauer talking about this with regards to feminism at some point. Um, in terms of xenofeminism um, and the kind of privileged positions that might articulate as well. Um, but mm. so certainly, I mean, yeah, Afro-pessimism is like a, a really intriguing and it feels almost like inappropriate for me to comment on it, but it also reminds me so much of, say, like Lacanian psychoanalysis or like just the structure around a master signifier as 
you know, even if it's like the negative of like anti-blackness, we still have this kind of this, you know, what Leotard would call this great zero from which the rest of the meaning structure, you know, um, emanates from, emanates forth. And I think um, it's always it's just always interesting when someone builds a, a theoretical framework around that because it does describe something of the world, even if you feel it, if it feels a bit like obviously partial, but it's um, it's very it's very powerful in its analytic capacity even if it's uh dispiriting but it's hard yeah it's a really hard one to actually yeah properly tarry with i think Hmm. and do you do you focus on pop music because you're kind of trying to do like a an inversion of you know the frankfurt school snobbery and and talk (laughs) about like there's actually something important in popular music and it's not just commercialized packaged bubblegum for mindless masses well i mean like i mean i'm i'm uh one of mark fisher's supervisees so uh the the, the <laughs> pop the pop element of it is going to be like it, it is vital because it's so libidinized right so it is it is so much um or like so much of it is so libidinized that you have to pay attention to where desire is um you have to pay attention to um, the ways in which this is being mobilized, um, and you can, I think, you can simultaneously be Adornian. Like, I, I, I don't like the whole throw Adorno out thing. I do whenever someone's super Adornian, and then I get very contrarian about it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I think it can be at once the case that this is um, intensive, like libidinal force that can be. that is entirely ambivalent as to um any kind of political aims but it's so powerful that it's so it's worth attending to and taking seriously um i'm yeah i think one of the things we talked about on a previous appearance i had on this podcast was a thing where i'd worked a lot with leotard's libidinal economy and i still need to work more with that text because i think the injunction he makes in that of um, trying to take seriously the desires of the capitalized, which is to say, all of us, um, mm. is 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 like a, an imperative that we probably haven't quite um, grappled with. And if there is a direct tie into the current angle I'm taking on um, the work I'm doing around uh, like pop culture, fiction, and climate change, it is that we don't seem to desire an end to the catastrophe that's unfolding like yeah this is one of the things that frustrates me about most leftist movements is i feel like there's this 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 fundamental and potent dishonesty that people actually enjoy like consumerism like there there is a profound enjoyment that accompanies even the complaints you know and and I, I just feel like, like so often when you talk to to leftists, it's like, especially of a certain ilk, that there's this generalized, and maybe it's just in, and no, I was going to say it's in online circles, but it's not, because even in like activist circles and stuff like that, there's this, this one unwillingness to kind of like recognize the the force of libidinal investment that sedu that is so seductive, right? Mm. But then simultaneously, also there's like this. This like unwillingness for self-critical reflection to recognize that 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 none of us are immune from that seduction. Yeah. 
and to then really explore the depths of that, which is why libidinal economy research is so interesting to me. Um, you know, Amin Saman is somebody who he's based in um, in London, and he's written about these various structures of feeling that accompany the yeah. asset rich and the asset poor. And I think that type of research to me is building off of what Leotar establishes and many others within psychoanalysis mm. and things like that. But I just, it, it, the Deleuze Guattari project is, is also mm. in there with schizoanalysis. But I just feel like that the left would really, I don't know, do you, do you, do you, do you sometimes feel something similar to what I'm expressing? And, and then if so, like, what the fuck do we do about it? Like, I, I don't know. It's, I, I almost want to be like, stop thinking that you're above it all and that you're <laughs> pure and that you're not implicated. Like, like we are all implicated in things. And I think so much of, maybe so much of this comes to the people who want to, they want to place all the blame at like the mode of production. It's about production. Yeah. It's production. It's production. And so it's them. It's the state and it's, uh, you know, the state finance nexus and it's the industrial industrial complex military industrial complex and it's those it's them it's the big Mm. scale rather than being like no actually we're we we consumer libidinal investments matter yeah it's very much a co-constitutive both and kind of a thing right i mean we don't want to be reductive either way you know you guys are talking about Mm. it from the perspective of leotard's uh libidinal economy right i'm I'm thinking about and i've brought up on the podcast several times before uh ct nguyen's uh, paper on value capture and it seems mm. like a very similar phenomenon where uh, he's talking about it from the perspective of um, values but you could re- reframe it to think about it from the perspective of desires as being mm. an occasion where a social structure sort of provides reductive measurements of a perceived value in order to make them more efficient more efficiently achievable and optimized and then when that becomes pervasive in a social structure the individuals in that structure adopt the measurement as their value. It's supposed to be a heuristic for the original value that they have, but it ends up not actually functioning as that heuristic for various reasons, mostly because it's reductive. Um, And that individuals in those situations find themselves going after things they otherwise wouldn't. And, you know, we talk, I talk about it with my own students about as like grades as being an example of that, right? Grades give us reductive measurements. that are supposed to be heuristics for, academic achievement or whatever it is right um yeah but they they don't function that way at all we all know that they don't right they, uh, they mm. and even on the ground the level of desire they function um for students to just to merely achieve uh the grade regardless of the actual contents that that's supposed to represent and that seems like the kind of thing that's happening in in leftist circles around uh ecological um ecological stuff right i mean it's and, and social media is sort of one of the main social structures that you can analyze as producing this sort of phenomenon where um, in, individual enjoyment of sort of everything but success at the level of reducing carbon emissions, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, preventing the oncoming disaster um, seems to be both the effect of the way social structures function and create and sustain desire in individuals. And also those individuals taking on those desires that the social structure offers them, which are bastardized versions of what they ought to be, right? So yeah, it seems like the, the point is that it's you can't reduce it either to individual desire or to you know perverse social structures. It has to be both, right? And they and they co-constitute, reinforce one another. In fact, there'd be no way to explain how they're sustained over time 
if there wasn't this co-constitutive mm. relationship between the two, right? Indeed. That's why the feedback loop, the feedback loop is why it sustains itself and perpetuates over time. The desire yeah. capture is a, is a great way of kind of even thinking about the Deleuze Guattari project, which is, uh, is a, is about how it is that the capitalist system of social production, um, is constitutive of, but also feeds off of, um, the machinations of desire production, right? So social production is being something kind of uh, an apparatus of capture. And I think even in A Thousand Plateaus, they do speak of um, apparatuses of capture. And I've heard John David Ebert kind of comment on this as being like a regime of semiotic capture. So it's like meaning capture as well. So desire capture and meaning capture and value capture might also be interesting ways to explore various forms of how this takes place. Yeah, I think it's also interesting when, yeah, because like in this thing, we end up, I mean, I, I was yeah listening to your podcast recently and the uh, the idea that, yeah, no one knows how to define what value is <laughs> came up at some point um, <laughs> because it's like, it, it's uh, it's troublesome. And like, also I can say from experience of teaching um, kids at the business school, like they definitely do not know what value is because <laughs> they don't even have like a reductive kind of marxist take on it like it's production but like no or, or even and they don't even go to the next thing about it's exchange it's john roth wanna... writes in in his book abstract market theory john roth just says that value is essentially misrecognition right mm-hmm. like it's it's just always misrecognized as price in right. economic circles mm-hmm. yeah and so it has something to do with that fundamental just you know, there's like always, there's always something that, yeah, it's, it's like an unidentifiable. Oh, that's that's yeah. perfectly, perfectly synonymous with um, the idea of capture, right? <laughs> um, seeing value yeah. merely as price is a kind of reductive capturing via measurement. 100%. Yeah. And, and I think there's this, you know, the way that also we have this kind of play of synonyms here. So we have, you know, value, what appears to be value one moment is desire in the next, is power in the next. It's like there's this mm. slippage between them or potential, right? Like the kind of like power in the sense of it being potential, right? So it's 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 really interesting to see yeah, what whatever's capturing it will reveal what it what it what it, you know, what capacity we're actually particularly interested in at this point in time. Um yeah, it's uh and and that's yeah, that's definitely I think a place where we we are in general uncomfortable to talk, and I mean this in like in in various different circles as well, because I don't think it's it's not just um, a particularly leftist affliction, as I was mentioning before. Like the the kids at the business school do not know what value is, and yet the entire justification for the I mean, because they're not going to get to the discussion of it being misrecognition. That's not gonna that's not gonna happen, and we'll be lucky if we get there. <laughs> um, uh, well, for them, it's they, probably it doesn't even matter. I would imagine, right? Well, like it's it's mm. like why why are you even spending time worried about theories of value and what value means? Like it's it's price buy low, sell yeah. high. You yeah, know? and it's it's KPIs. That's what it is. Um, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, also, I mean, it's, it, and even grading gets more reductive than 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 grades. Like when you have the whole ECTS point system of like you get the points for passing the module. Like there is no distinction between me struggling to get these kids to read gender trouble versus memorizing a bunch of kind of rote um like economic formulas. Like those are both seven See, and a half ECTS points. To me. 
You just get to <laughs> no, throw no, a grenade no. into these kids' brains. <laughs> oh, no. That is fun. That is entirely fun. I have so much fun doing that. And when they start to fight amongst themselves, <laughs> I had one kid saying to me, like, I think at the end of all this, just everyone has to be gay. And I was like, I think... I didn't say this, but I was like, maybe that's just something for you to explore. <laughs> but it's <laughs> like, <laughs> but like that anxiety comes out. You start to see them like actually kind of like therapize themselves. I've had these moments of revelation happen for students as they start to think about these questions. And the fact that that is seven and a half ECTS points in the same way that their economics, their, their microeconomics class is also seven and a half ECTS points, but they just memorize some rote mm. formulas. It's like, oh, like those aren't the same things at all. <laughs> like, but they are mm. the same things when it comes to say organizing an institution. When it comes to say defining what it is to produce a um, a graduate within the society that is funding the education. Right. So that's exactly what you're saying before about value capture. Like, it's it's um this this flattening is like really intense. And on this point around like desire in this setting, like yeah, we have we can obviously like flagellate as um, good leftists always have around like our own inability to see our uh, our um our complicity with the system that we're that we're living in. But like, I have this little um, very very nerdy reading group with a couple of. Uh, um, psychoanalytic friends of mine um, where we do uh, close readings of Harvard business cases around organizational politics we, re- we read them like we, re- we read them like the terrible literature that they are and the question that we just keep returning to is where is the desire in this document like it, it is so it, and, and as we try to interrogate that and of course we have to examine our own smug self-satisfied counter-transference around this like huh we, we get things <laughs> but um <laughs> but like we get we get that, that that there is this deep kind of anxiety within it about you know wanting to be close to power this is the other thrill in like leotard the building economy right of being mm. proximate Mm-mm. to the the fist that's crushing you um because it's gonna you know hold you tight at the same time it's gonna annihilate you into its own protective shape in some way um so yeah i'm looking at the, i'm looking at the uh at a machine for the regulation of desire in my day-to-day work all the time this is great this i have this so this wanting to be close to power i've been thinking a lot about like whiteness and blackness and in relation to finance and like the philosophy of economics and and kind of from a critical political economic frame as well and and one of the things I've I, I've been thinking about is if we say that like whiteness is a concept that constitutes itself, and this is the very like Afro pessimistic line, right? In the kind of like it's anti-black stance of 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 completely excluding blackness as a constitutive element of what whiteness is, then does that construct a world, let's say, of power? that allows for like equity as a as a form of a stake an ownership a participatory relation for those who are deemed white right to with within a grading scale right like people are going to be more quote unquote white as as they kind of are uh, closer to the kind of like centrality of the power mechanisms or whatever and then uh, there would be like a sliding scale and then there would be like a qualitative break like outside maybe in um it like that that defines maybe what blackness is so do you think maybe that we could think then of like 
this like seduction towards power, wanting to be close to power, that that kind of also helps us understand the so, the, the the seductive capacity of let's say whiteness, but also power, and then also like a lot of the things that might characterize the modern world with coloniality and mm. with um, imperialism and with um, uh, with patriarchy and things of that nature. Do you think that that's a way to kind of think of things with this like seduction to power is that is that we're also being like sucked into this like master signifier that's trying to stitch everything together according to whiteness and that that's where the afro-pessimist idea of like destroying the world comes from which then makes me think of the idea of like the shimmer and then like you know cedric Mm. robinson writes about this idea that there's like something kind of transcendent about black identity about black being that no matter what what slavery tried to do in the construction of the Negro, it couldn't kill black being. And mm. is that kind of what what we could think of as being like a shimmer of blackness that comes through, mm. you know, um, black music or black art or black performance like Wilderson and Sexton are want to mm. talk about? Yeah, I think that's that makes a lot of sense to me. I think the... But I think this is also gets the kind of like the... Um, the wonderfully ambivalent quality of the shimmer, right? Like it doesn't really care for the hierarchy of um, meaning making that say a system of whiteness or kind of a, a, like a colonial like race structure relies upon, right? That's so, it's so, it's so kind of old fashioned in a way, like the sort of, well, it's definitely old fashioned, like the kind of like hierarchical, um, almost occult machinations of whiteness. Like, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself when I saw um, Killers of the Flower Moon, like uh, that scene where um, Leonardo DiCaprio is being spanked by uh, Robert De Niro with a paddle. And you're like, oh yeah, this is uh, the civilization <laughs> portion of the of the equation here with mm. their strange arcane ways of disciplining each other to perform their um, their fealty to some kind of power system. And at the same time, it's masochistic because of course, like that's, that's part of the seduction as well. Like um, that one day you could escape punishment. Um, yeah, and I think getting into that, the question of like, yeah, like a sort of a black shimmer or like, I think the space that blackness occupies in relation to that will in relation to that kind of uh, hegemonic whiteness um, will appear nihilistic from that vantage point. And I think that's a vantage point that I, for one, can't entirely escape given the particular bourgeois white situation of myself. But I'm definitely very critical of that perspective. Um, so in a sense, like that kind of ability to, uh, as we're already talking about, the sort of referentiality within Childish Gambino's work um, and in, say, yeah, black performance in general, like a la sort of Fred Moten and stuff, um, that is anathema to the kinds of notions of discrete individualism that whiteness is predicated upon, um, that ownership is predicated upon, that the hierarchical structures of uh, bourgeois capitalism are are structured upon. But at the same time, it's also anathema to how capital moves, as we find in A Thousand Plateaus, for example, right? Capital does not give a shit about um, who owns what it's about flows it's about how it can move how it can be um, how it can multiply itself how it can draw from a multifarious set of sources um, and in that sense 
we have, you know, a force at play here um, that is perhaps more in tune with a kind of ecological sense of how the processes of processes of reality actually function um, that is just way less naive than any structure of racial violence predicated on whiteness as being central. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know if it's totally coincidental, but I actually have been working through this essay by Jared Sexton called The Social mm. Life of Social Death. Right. And uh, one of the things he talks about is this, you know, one of the critiques of Afro-pessimism is that there's no conception of like life or vitality or creation or, or an alternative, you know, it's just pessimistic. And, and he's kind of like, I just don't think that's kind of the whole point of what the Afro-pessimistic outlook is trying to articulate. It's trying to take seriously this concept of social death, you know, that's first elaborated by like Orlando Patterson, right? That, that there's something about the continuation of enslaved existence in the new world. So what does it mean to take that seriously? And he says that, um, he has this great phrase here. He says, black life, black life is lived in social death. And then he says double yeah. emphasis on lived and death. So it's basically like black life is lived death, like a form of lived death. And then he goes on to say, um, actually it's the page before that, but he says, nothing in Afro-pessimism suggests that there is no black social life, only that black social life is not social life in the universe formed by the codes of state and civil society, of citizen and subject, of nation and culture, of people and place, of history and heritage. All the things that colonial society has in common with the colonized, of all that capital has in common with labor the modern world system. And then he says, black life is not lived in the world that the world lives in, but is lived underground. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, that's that's also like, um, kind of also ties very nicely into what I was saying before about like kind of the parallels I see between say, like Lacanian psychoanalysis and Afro-pessimism is it, it is a entirely coherent analysis of a particular an enclosed kind of signifying system, which is to say one predicated on the centrality of whiteness in the same way that Lacanian psychoanalysis is a world predicated on um, bourgeois subjectivity, for example. Um, that kind mm. of desire construction. Um, is it, of course, possible to have socialities outside of that? Is it possible to have desires outside of that? Yes, but um, mm. we couldn't possibly talk about them um, within the discourses that would be legible to anyone on this call um, because mm -hmm. they are so entangled in this mode of signification that it's, 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 um, it, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it gets back to my kind of like favorite um, Kafka quote, which is like, you know, the, from one of his letters where he says, there is hope, but not for us. Like we are the capitalized. Mm -hmm. We are the, we are the colonists forever. Like there's no, there's no way that our being, can properly escape that but what we can do is shift a discussion towards or shift a kind of understanding away from it i think um although yeah this does remind me of your podcast i was listening to earlier today about like yeah maybe i'm just deferring my uh <laughs> my desire for a political project beyond my own lifetime but um <laughs> but it's <laughs> but i i also just don't think that um yeah, I think that if you take seriously the Afro-pessimist complaint and like also the post-colonial 
um, not complaint, critique <laughs> of the world as it is, um, then then the, 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 what follows from that is a kind of inexorable trap that we will live within. Um, we don't. I don't think we can reprogram our nervous systems and meaning-making apparatus to actually get outside of it um, in a single gesture, which is, I guess, where I also sort of like part company from the from the schizoanalysis project in some ways. Like that's a bit too of a quick. It's too much of a quick jump um, to make. Mm. Is that because these discourses need to function in such a way that they're kind of an unwinding? of the dominant discourse is that an appropriate metaphor yeah i think so um and that unwinding happens i think generationally um i think i i think that we you know because we it, our systems of meaning have always been passed on um and you know i i, I think you know i've been thinking a lot recently about uh, the the discussion about the moment when europe for the most part, not entirely. If you include people, like, obviously you should include like the Sami and stuff in uh, northern Sweden. But like when when the people of Europe became non-indigenous and that that gesture of like signification for a kind of transcendental um, organization of reality is where we start to not understand the world in a way that has that immediacy that is perhaps closer to an ecological way of thinking and of course at the same time i don't want to like hierarchize one as like being the bad way of existing but um but it's a problem and i think integrating these things together is a is a unwinding that will take some time i wonder then (laughs) do you think there's a place for or what is the place for say utopian fiction Mm. Hmm. because that would say afrofuturism Afrofuturism is yeah. is absolutely a, a, a style of mm-hmm. of yeah. utopianizing, right? That takes place from within the kind of like an Afro optimism, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the worry there would be, or at least the danger, at least, is that it doesn't sort of um, take on that that function of unwinding, or at least there's a danger of it sort of um, not incorporating that work into it right Hmm. yeah taking the too big of a jump you were talking about yeah i think it depends yeah i think it's the different levels at which it can function because like i would say i'm probably not the biggest proponent of utopianism in general i think i've i've spent the last couple of years really struggling with the insistence that i talk about hope (laughs) a lot of the time (laughs) um because it's not for us, it's for other people. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's certainly in that it can energize, that it can um, galvanize those, the, the extent of like engaging in unwinding, um, that makes some sort of sense. It, yeah, the, the, the risk will always be that it will make too big of a jump. Um, where I think uh, there is some potential is like this um, wonderful little term of critical dystopias um i think it's what's his name thomas moynan or something um one of the kind of people within like utopian studies and what that is is a a, a kind of a a dystopian uh fiction fictional world of some sort of catastrophe um that contains within it a utopia that is incredibly other because it's displaced um what was before 
in the in in, in becoming a dystopia. Um, so uh, yeah, like something like The Last of Us functions like this because it's a utopia for mushrooms. You just happen not to be a mushroom. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, it seems like a the proper utopian fiction then would be would be very alien and possibly yeah. alienating for that reason, and therefore not really functioning to be hope generating, even though yeah. it would still be properly termed utopia. Which was why I think Alexander Garland's completely dehumanized, weird character populated stories work well for this. <laughs> like, it's not a, he's not a very human storyteller whenever he makes his uh, films or series. Well, what do you think? What do you think about the new one? How does oh, it look, not, the Civil War film? Oh yeah, that does look interesting. I've not seen that yet. I've also not seen Men. I kind of want to see Men as well. Um, but I, the, I really liked Devs because it was just like an like a little um, exposition of Spinoza for people. Uh, but uh, the but yeah, the, I mean the Civil War one looks kind of interesting. Um, I, I I will watch it and I will uh, I will see how it plays out. But I I always like how his his characters are just a vehicle to get the idea across in some way, and that. Mm. That that kind of like alien perspective on humans, I find pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm also anticipating civil war. Even though um, I I kind of chafe at the idea that like where I am now, I think is part of the Florida territory or something like that, or Florida right. unification or whatever it is. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, the things that would have to happen for that to be the case. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to get a bunch of American geographers and historians really trying to analyze how it is that he's constructed the whatever it is, the territories that he's constructed <laughs> and tearing it apart. And it's going to take the fun out of what is probably just going to be – it's going to be thoughtful and conceptual in other ways. So I, maybe we should just not take it so literally. You know? I think – and he's British. He doesn't know. <laughs> I, I was well. I literally that was my first thought. I my <laughs> first thought was I did wonder that I was like, he, would he have the same connection to that kind of like that that tear? Like I'm from California. I don't even think I could make a film on like a new civil war because I feel like I'm still removed. Like I feel like you need to be from. A, that part of the world like somewhere around you know where yeah. where troy is and, and 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 maybe north of there but just somewhere around there whereas you yeah. know california is even too far removed let alone the uk no yeah. no american can make this film well i mean maybe a, a you know garland won't make it the way that it should be <laughs> but no american could do it like i i wouldn't even trust like a scorsese or somebody to do this appropriately too close there's something there's like a disease about being an american you can't you can't analyze american political reality accurately like i think it's not because like americans are a disease i think like there's a there's a pervasiveness of um there's like a there's like a mental disease a psychological disease out there in america that makes that sort of disables us from from analyzing things appropriately i mean every every, every time we've had a major political upheaval it seems like in the last 40 years no one's understood it at the time right Mm. I think for good reason. Yeah, I think it's it's the it's the whole like like conditions of cruel optimism, right? Like it's uh, like it has you, you got to keep believing, <laughs> and it's and whereas I think a certain kind of there's a, there's a different sort of sensibility um, of just despair that means you'll get the geography wrong, but <laughs> you can maybe talk about the forces that are at play a little bit more accurately <laughs> um, from that perspective. It was the same reason why like maybe um, it's that. A prophet isn't welcomed in his own home, sort of thing. Maybe it's like a prophetic moment is never 
welcomed or recognized in its own context. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, also, I think, you know, it's also back to like the whole Marx thing about when he's asked about the, like the, uh, the effect of the French Revolution, right? It's like, it's too soon to tell. Like, it's, it's, it's perpetually too soon to tell what's going to go on, what's, what's, what, you know, I keep using that same line to talk about like what the cultural impact of Barbie will be. <laughs> yeah, that does seem very much up in the air where you can see the forces of, um, it's, it's, you know, sort of Barbie as merely commercial product versus Barbie as, um, I don't know, intrusion of, of, uh, like academic thinking into the popular sphere that, that enlightens the every man or something and both obviously being reductive and, and awful and wrong. Uh, but the, you can see the battle of those two things happening in the discourse right now, trying to um, mm. win the game over how to interpret the film. Which I guess takes us back to the idea of value capture, right? Or, or capturing desire in some way. Like at the same time, like the whole project of it is to try and it's in some ways a chance for like Mattel to try and capture this desire for like um, re-articulating gender through uh, like more egalitarian and perhaps more emancipatory like means and practices and Mattel would like to capture that <laughs> in some sense. Um, but at the same time, you know, Greta Gerwig has made another film about death, <laughs> which is also, you know, has some sort of potential to it, which I think is perhaps escaping that apparatus of capture at the same time. Um, and yeah, we just, we just don't get to know yet, um, which is always fun to think about. I mean, what, what do you think? So, if the shimmer, and, and maybe this isn't quite the right way to think about it, but if the shimmer is like this excessive resonance, mm-hmm. and then you talk about like you kind of hint at the possibilities of a political project that can then maybe work from the shimmer, um, yeah. like how do you how do you how do you think of this as being something that is that is enacted or that is that is operable that that can be a strategic political project or is there a problem as soon as you start introducing strategy you start then capturing it you capture the shimmer in the language of the discourse the university discourse maybe in mm. Lacanian terms right or something yeah so so what what do you see as being like a prolonged possibility and and then this it made me wonder you were talking earlier about like maybe the world isn't for us or, or, or something along maybe the project mm. isn't for us maybe maybe it's like we do need to let the world die and and I don't mean this in like mm-hmm. some sort of like, you know, like, cause cause it could turn into like some, like dark terrain, mm-hmm. like a like an eco fascist type of direction, but like is there like a Euro nihilism or like a Western nihilism that that is kind of like, you know, kill the whiteness kind of um, the 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 kill the uh, equitable terrain of whiteness to, to transform equity relations or something. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out like what is, what is the strategic project that could be built out of this? Um, in some way it's actually, maybe this is again, my, 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 my entanglement with the Fisherian project kind of shining through, but there is like this desire for me to go back to the unfinished work of this kind of, 70s leftist project of like trying to work out you know what's the um 
what is the configuration of our subjectivities within this? What is the psychological experience that we're going through? And and this is kind of the imperative I sort of put to the, uh, the, the, the nameless sort of critics that I'm addressing towards the end of the article of like, you have to not place yourself as the thing that is above that that designates the value of the work that you're experiencing. You have to let yourself be transformed in the process of trying to engage with it. It's kind of like the meta discourse that goes to this article is like me kind of becoming overwhelmed with the idea to the point where actually the article itself transforms focus by the end. <laughs> like I try to start talking about like, oh, here's this image which we could maybe use to think through things. And hey, actually now we're talking about the position of... Um, like the critic as such in relationship to a kind of racial capitalism that structures how who gets to talk at all <laughs> right i'm i'm being affected by trying to think about what it is to be affected by these things and that's i think sort of the which i mean obviously is a thing that has i guess will run into limitations about being legible <laughs> at a certain point within a discourse that requires someone to have a stable identity through the through an entire piece of writing mm. um but i think at least if there's a strategic um, imperative, it is to engage with the fact that this is affecting you. Um, I think uh, similarly, I think this is also what I think we kind of see sort of playing out with the dissonance surrounding um, the, con the, well, the, the genocide in Gaza, right? Is that people... Uh, like everyday people are encountering images of complete horror at the same time they're being told the geopolitical position is that our country supports this. Um, and yet they're right. being so affected by it that there's this, I think, kind of despair. Like, like here there's like practically nightly protests about this in the streets of Copenhagen, right? And this is a relatively placid part of the world most of the time. Um and it and it's like you know just watching people like actually kind of come undone and of course this is very intense sort of media experience but but it's like there's a they're attending to the ways in which we are being transformed by what we encounter and not just say you know formal transformative experiences like say like religious conversion or education or like you know, um, or like the profound works of art, but realize that realizing this kind of subtle ways that it's all kind of affecting us. That like even to think about the thing is a kind of level of being affected by it. Um, mm. Like getting into that, getting closer to taking seriously some of the implications of that, I think becomes a a, a strategic necessity. And when it comes, so that this is so back into the kind of Fisherian project of this. Um, like that, evaluating that, dealing with that, trying to conceptualize how that's working is, I think, vital. Um, and I think to an extent, dragging it into the university discourse at the same time, affecting the nature of the university discourse. The university discourse is not totalizing or, mm. it, it, or, or it, it itself is a historically contingent thing. Um, and similarly, I'm you know, reminded of like, you know, my, my, in my reading of capitalist realism, we have to like pay attention to the, uh, the CCRU version of Mark Fisher that still lingers mm -hmm. in that book. Right. So when he's saying, um, you know, uh, or lamenting this kind of a uh, trope that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, he also, I think hints at like, well, why not, why not just lean into the easier thing then? 
like if these things are so entangled, if these things can be um, cannot be separated from one another, then I think it's also I mean Cesare writing about like you know the only thing worth imagining is the end of the world, and I think like from so many vantage points right yeah. now, that is the worthwhile thing. It's so interesting. I know that sometimes the critique of of Afro pessimism is actually that is that that that's the only thing that's on offer is the is the destruction of the world. And then it makes me wonder, though, but this is the world, and this is a quote from uh, from the Sexton article, but he's quoting Gordon, so I don't know Gordon, but um, and I don't see a first name anywhere, um, but it's that uh, uh, the world currently is structured by the negative categorical imperative, which is, above all, don't be black, right? Um, and And so... In the turn towards blackness, it's like a turn towards the pathology, but in an affirmative sense, to destroy that world, not to, like, destroy life, which is interesting in Annihilation, because in the film Annihilation, it's actually the excess of life that causes Annihilation. It's not, like, the negation of life, right? Like, that's the whole point of the cancer metaphor is that it's unrestrained life without the cells mm. dying so it's mm. it's life that just continually encroaches but what it annihilates isn't life or existence or reality or no. possibility but it annihilates the static forms of um uh maybe of of pre-existent um structure that's what's annihilated or specifically yeah. of complete I think you turned you termed it in the article making static individuation, yeah. which I took as something like complete self control at the ontological level, right? Not at yeah. the temperamental level or whatever, but the ontological level, and that's the thing that gets annihilated. And that's you know to me that seems like the through line through all these things from mm. academia and use of grades to you know value capture at the business and finance level to Afro pessimism and everything else and talking about um, dystopia and utopia. Like the through line, psychoanalytic through line underneath all that mm. seems to me to be control. Yeah. Right. And the need to um, control one's environment. And there's a kind of anxiety that comes from living in a very complex society where you don't really understand the mechanisms of control that are operating. Mm. Right. And so it seems to me like the the whole it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. A kind of twist on that is that the reason why we love all these dystopian stories about the end of the world is partly due to the fact that um, that anxiety goes away, right? Because now everything is placed into stark relief. Like what matters to you, what's of value is no longer complicated. It's survival. Or in the better versions of it, like Last of Us or whatever, it's love for one single individual and, and sacrifice for that person or whatever, right? It becomes very clear what matters and what's valuable. And that's not the case in everyday life in a complex um, social life, right? I imagine there's a kind of a a similarity between that and like Yellowstone, which I haven't watched, Mm. so I don't know for Mm. sure. But something about Yellowstone, why I think it's so popular is partly because of um, what's what's valuable and what matters to the the main characters is like very clear. Like I own this land and you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Mm. Get off my land. Mm. Um, Yeah. And so, and, and the clips I've yeah, watched again, about oh, <laughs> clips I've watched of that is because I get the thrill of like, oh, the simplicity of, of that kind of like very conservative way of being. <laughs> right, and that and that makes yeah. a lot of sense given that um, 
it relieves you from the anxiety temporarily at least of living in this complex society where you have all these mechanisms of control that are operating on you and producing desires in you that you don't really you can't really connect to things you ultimately believe matter right or at least it's not clear how you can and that that produces a lot of anxiety in us because it's not it, it's not ultimately you know fully rational or whatever we can't sort of reconcile um meaningfulness in life with that right whereas even though living in the last of us world would be awful in so many ways mm. at least you would kind of know what your life is about <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think that's 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 true and i think like the um the i think yeah if there is an end of the world project it has to come with a simultaneous re-territorialization of the new one right i think otherwise it does run the risk of basically just being like a um ontological death drive um, it's just like the 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 the, 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 um, the relief of the cessation of desire um, that can be pulled in so many different ways. And of course, what anxiety is is of course the thing you know, these these conflicting pulls of wanting and being terrified at the same time, right? So dealing with that tension and that contradiction is the is is I think perhaps if there's any kind of um, gesture towards what you could maybe try to. I mean, it's going to sound very conservative, but like some sort of maturity, it is the capacity to like sit with the fact that, yeah, you live in an incredibly complex world. I mean, also like, you know, this, yeah. this, 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 this gesture towards um, a kind of transcendental subjectivity that produce that, you know, produces the modern, um, the modern subject. And then literally like the kind of the colonial subject you know, is also a response to a world of chaos and and, and complexity. Like it, the fact that we have a bunch of like smartphone pings um, now, but we're kind of free of like you know mysterious diseases taking our youngest child, um, like in in the same in the same way, like uh, or the same intensity. Like that was the confusion of the world that brought forth a desire to control in the first place like this we have always been situated in a in an environment that is relatively um well is entirely uh disinterested in whether or not we we live or die really um but life is perpetuating itself on it's excessive it will you know and we are some sort of symptom of that this gets very ontological very quickly <laughs> but uh it's funny you yeah. you were talking earlier about the last of us and how it's like yeah. it's like the mushrooms will live on or whatever so it's like mm. a world for the the fucking yeah. fungus or whatever there's yeah. i've actually heard these people that are talking about our gut biome and mm. how actually our bodies are just essentially meat vehicles for our gut biome to uh, continue on to live without us. And that like the gut biome has been around for millions of years longer than we have. And that it'll continue to like persist uh, long after humans are gone. It'll just find other organisms, you know, where it can like latch onto itself. So I've, I've actually heard people kind of like float this idea that, uh, that that's kind of Maybe that's the uh, the 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 vital annihilationist impulse of a certain kind of I don't know I don't know if it's like a, a hippy dippy like um, you know really, health it, health health crowd or whatever. It's funny because like the depiction of that is like a gut biome that is so cruel that it would like birth a creature with the kind of consciousness that can like keep it awake at night wondering about whether or not she'll text back um as a kind of vehicle for its own perpetuation <laughs> like, like what sort of like monster is this yeah. oh, you just gotta like, keep feeding you just gotta keep feeding yeah, yeah. it to nurture it so that it annihilates your body 
Entirely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's Fra- Frankenstein's the name of the gut biome, right? Not, not the human, <laughs> yeah. the conscious human being. You know, it's um, it's, mm. it's really great because this is a theme in, in your article, right? Making mm. that there's um something about dystopian fiction in the sort of Walking Dead mold, which is like the you know the kind of um, more commonly uh, recognized form of like dystopian fiction, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. As distinct from like what's happening in Annihilation, part of that is this like utopia for mushrooms thing, but not just in terms of. Um, merely like the plot content of the of the fiction, right? But in terms of how the way in which we're affected by it, right? When you watch The Walking Dead, part of what you really enjoy is seeing these characters go from alienated individuals, whether it's because of their job, their family life, or whatever it is, right? To having a very clear goal um, and then yeah. becoming very good at it and succeeding at accomplishing that goal, which is conquer the bad guys create a society mm-hmm. where people are like you know happy and can have families and whatever right very simple straight ahead straightforward easy to understand comprehensible goals um and that's unlike what it appears to be that's not actually anxiety inducing to think about that it's anxiety reducing or alleviating mm-hmm. right because you have this like now you have clear goals that you can sort of um accomplished by proxy of the, the fictional characters and whatnot. So it's not actually anxiety-inducing, it's anxiety-deflating or alleviating. Yeah. Yeah. But then annihilation is the opposite, right? Because the kind of annihilation that happens when you lose your your sense of static individuation, your control over mm. your environment, mm. such that you can be a, an individual cordoned off from all everything in your ecological environment. In fact, you now become co-constitutive with your environment, Right. Um, that sort yeah. of change is not anxiety alleviating. <laughs> it's anxiety inducing in precisely the appropriate mm-hmm. way, right? By making you recognize the sort of um, well, what's what, what's ultimately at the bottom level happening here? Well, it's your it's your anxiety at this sort of ultimate the sense of ultimate control over yourself and your environment, and that when you watch Annihilation is the mm-hmm. thing that's anxiety inducing. So it's actually like uncovering what's really happening at the bottom where The Walking Dead and those kinds of dystopian yeah. fictions do quite the opposite. They cover over what's actually happening by giving you this, this alleviation of your anxiety. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's entirely, yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that entirely. Um, the, 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 the being forced to let go of that, 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 one, that, that thing that you think you can control. I mean, I, I don't think I can put it very much better than you, but I mean, I was just thinking that the um, the the scene that often comes up to my head from a, another pop culture piece is like a, in Fight Club when um, the narrator is like lamenting his destroyed apartment, and he says, "I I had the best couch. I thought, you know, whatever happens, I've got that couch problem sorted." <laughs> and you just go like, "That's hmm. oh, I've got the couch situation. Like he's got that under control." Um, and there is this, yeah, this um the the desire for like a kind of stable state which is kind of maintained by the 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 tension that is anxiety um that produces a kind of like um a barrier to the rest of the world that you think you can operate within but actually is entirely self-destructive to your nervous system to your well-being to your ability to actually be present to other people it, it is um it's it you know it it it's so it's so it's so myopic, but it makes so much sense in a world where we have 
a series of KPIs in the forms of, you know, students graduating or income accrued or like cases filed, like that can monitor our, 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 our goodness. And like, I'm, you know, and so in the, in the last uh, couple of years, I've been like trying to get through like my own kinds of anxiety things and doing a lot of therapy around this and just realizing, oh yeah, like the expectation is that I can just like weaponize this to plow on through like working and living in neoliberal capitalism. But actually it's um, exhausting. And at a certain point it will collapse its own nervous system to a certain extent. Um, the, the oh, what was I thinking about here? Um, I mean, there's so many like, I'm, I'm just seeing this now in like so much of like uh, in, in pop culture, like if it, either of you have seen to see, have seen um, the anime series uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm, I know uh, of it. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Well, like like the robots in that, right? The the, the mechs um, are you know they have like the subjectivity of humans within them, like the mothers of the characters, which is very very Lacanian. Even more Lacanian is that they are protected by a force field called AT fields, which stands for absolute terror fields, <laughs> right? <laughs> Like it is anxiety that keeps a barrier from each other, which actually protects them from violence. And then I think about this in the context of, say, um, Lauren Balant's, um last book um, on the inconvenience of other people. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about like, yeah, like the willingness to be inconvenienced, to have that um, state, that, that relatively like stable state, disrupted by encountering the other. And realizing that actually that, that encounter is going to affect whatever you think um, interiority is um, for good and bad. It is always an inconvenience because the world as it's set up is one that wants to like drag you along its little path and allow you to produce in a certain way in the, in the of this world of whiteness and capitalism that we inhabit. Um, that was very rambly as well. At, uh, at, a, but, at like a global... Think, yeah political yeah. level i think it's lionel robbins yeah. who said like yeah. in like the 40s he was like talking about the value of united precarity or unified mm. i think it was like you were, were like <laughs> that the world is 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 like you know and this is somebody who's trying to like think about how to um work within a liberal capitalist order and i remember mm. I'm, I'm pretty sure in quinn slobodian's globalist he he quotes this and i can't remember exactly the phrasing if it's like that the world is united in precarity or reunified by precarity or unified through precarity but it has something to do with this idea that 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 ultimate terror what is it absolute terror or whatever um, absolute that terror it, yeah yeah that that is kind of something that is it's like the never let a good crisis go to waste sort of thing but then crisis is perpetual it's that there's this yeah. constant situation of of precarity that that serves as a set of conditions for mitigating and controlling the anxiety that's induced from that in the hands of tech like you know like managerial elites that can technocratically come up with solutions and and feed you like temporary temporary salves um you know, while yeah. constantly reminding you that the world is precarious, the world is precarious, which kind of then induces your fidelity. Yeah, <laughs> and that's um, and what's really interesting about that is at the same time, like it's not like they're entirely, it's not entirely incorrect, right? Like 
the world is dangerous in a kind of like Foucauldian sense of it. Like there is a lot of like things that will destabilize you. Like the idea that, you know, you can be transformed by the encounter. Like I don't, that you can, that, that, you know, there are forces that are way beyond your control. Like the whole thing about, you know, there's an imperative, I guess, in this article as well for me to say, let's, let's try and come to terms with the fact that we're just not in control. Um, and that might be the only position from where we can begin to strategize towards uh, uh, what we might want. Um, and here I'm like very much like uh, influenced by, do you know where uh, the sociologist, though he really is actually a philosopher, um, Martin Savransky? Mm-mm. I don't either. No. He's a, he's, he's a um, goldsmith. So he writes a lot about like ontological pluralism, but also like the, the constitution of problems as the things that we actually want, um, which is, you know, got its pluses and minuses as an argument, but it's like, it's, mm. yeah, he's does some really nice work. And he gave this wonderful um, uh, lecture against hope um, recently, uh, which I saw. And, and, and in this, he's talking about like the kind of, the, this this sort of this 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 promise that we'll eventually get some sort of redeemed um, world on the basis of all the horrors we're currently inducing, the sort of hope that one day this will all have made some sort of sense. We'll always defer and always make the problem uh, one for the future. Um, whereas actually, what we should be attending to are the kind of more the sort of the tactics that we engage in in the present to protect that which we consider to have some sort of worth um rather than the the hope that will eventually redeem all of the kind of suffering like what do we actually do now rather than um looking like so far ahead and because like, i think that we do have to deal with the fact that we cannot strategize sufficiently to get the feeling of control that this will work out and like the, the, the doing so itself is a perpetuation of a kind of capitalist bourgeois white whatever sort of combination of things modern subjectivity that that demands such a fiction be um at underneath it all um it's it's part of the same uh limitation on our thinking limitation on our ways of understanding reality whereas what we actually do know in the concrete and this is actually even back to a kind of basic psychological principle is that what do you know concretely that you think is important and what can you actually do? Um, and that isn't to say that you shouldn't engage in the speculation about what might come, but that if it is, if that is the over-determining part of the project, it will be, um, it, it, will, it, will, it will fall into the trap. So it's about, the, I guess, maybe the ethics of where you place abstraction and immediacy. Yeah, this is really good. You know, sense. you mentioned earlier, making that when when people start talking about hope, um, I guess the way I'd phrase it is like when someone's in philosophy starts to talk about hope, I reach for my gun. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's usually right. like in, in my circles working in analytic ethics, it's usually, um, other than the people who like work directly on hope as like a, you know, um, as a concept or doing some sort of conceptual analysis of it, it's usually like a, here, here's my project and then here's a, here's a, an appendix on how we can think about something hopeful because usually if I'm describing reality, it's not very hopeful. Um, and that always, I think is what the kind of thing you're describing where it has this function where it's, it's actually leading us astray. It's, it's really seeming to be functioning as, um, here's a way you can relieve whatever 
sort of negative feeling you have given what I've just laid mm. out. Um, and it comes prepackaged in this like here's you know three steps we can take to to make the make this you know the problem better or resolve the problem or whatever it is right and it, it always has this function of like i'm just gonna you know leave you feeling better off than you did five minutes ago which never seems appropriate in and of itself as a goal right um and it always seems tacked on for those reasons but it, it does seem like it's a, there's a nice connection here between the the stuff we're talking about in terms of dystopian utopian fiction and whatnot where it's like actually the the hopeful thing or the truly hopeful thing if there is like a true actual hope is to not have that alleviation of anxiety right it's actually if you want something really hopeful which is like you know a better world or whatever it might mean you have to end up being different than you are right you end up having to be affected by things in such a way that you're no longer the same person anymore like the characters annihilation come out no longer the same persons that they were right um So yeah, the, the hopeful thing is actually to make you feel worse, <laughs> if anything else. Yeah. Well, yeah, the hopeful thing is actually just like, it's kind of a letting go. Yeah, it's like letting go of this self that is held in place by the by the absolute terror field, right? Like um, it's it's the ability to be, to be unworried by what might come and befall you because you are not concerned with preserving a so rigidly so statically individuated you um and yeah it's a <laughs> that that i think that if there's yeah if there is if there's a hope it is it is in our capacity to transform so even when it, if i was to say back to the kafka thing like there is hope but not for us we can also change mm, um yeah but yeah this is the project of any kind of encounter with desire like i guess like the you know the lacanian formulation of desire being that lack that you try to um you know, uh, the object Petier you can never reach. Um, Like, yeah, because you wouldn't reach it. (laughs) If you encountered it and actually did encounter it, you would no longer be constituted by the same lack. Um, You know, the mystery to me is always like, which is, you know, if we are in psychoanalytic terms, uh, a product of our symptoms, which symptom takes itself to therapy um, to annihilate itself, uh, to annihilate its own, its own constitution. Like, the the capacity we have to be otherwise is the hopeful thing and trying to get comfortable with that um that's that you know it, it, it was antithetical to most of like how we've organized the world right um we you know our our, our credit or debt relations require us to be the same person uh, tomorrow as we are today um our yeah our student loans require that as well <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like all of these things are dependent on us um trying to push away the possibility that we can be different um which again is tied into all of our our kind of vanities about immortality and such which comes from our entrance into representation and such but like how do but getting trying to get you know maybe this does sounds kind of like hippie and buddhist in some sense but being okay with not being there is is a vital part of it, I think. And being something else when it's there as well. Um, I don't, yeah, don't want to get too nihilistic about this because obviously this is not something which is easily done or like um, something that you can just pontificate into into existence. But I no. think sitting with that problem that you will be transformed by the things that are significant, also being transformed by the things that are insignificant, like... Uh, like I could like to really pursue that 
career in academia can make you just a functionary of the system um, that you would decry as a graduate student. Um, like, and that would be a slower, more disturbing outcome. But like, you're not going to escape transformation either way, basically, I would say. And you can either Ooh. get on board with that or resist it and end up having the same thing happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, the the idea that you were talking about, Troy, with, you know, at the end of the essay, and you see it a lot in political philosophy, in political economy, essays, papers, talks as well. It's very much like, here's the critique, 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 and then the last quarter is, okay, cool, now here's what we can do to build a sort of like political program, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And And it's like everyone, I've always felt like this pressure that I must always end a paper or a talk on some sort mm. of up note as well. And I do wonder if it isn't a symptom of, you know, uh, what William Davies, Will Davies refers to it as like the happiness industry. And um, yeah. I think Ashley Frawley recently just wrote a book on um, oh, some significant emotions, you know, where, you know, people have talked a lot more recently. You know, Martin Konings talks about, you know, the emotional logic of capitalism, that there is this tendency where there is this like this mandate to be happy. This a ma- this mandate for our emotions to be always like uplifted at the end and um, and and yeah it I, I almost wonder if that doesn't put actually more pressure on us because there's no there's no payoff for it right like it's always this receding goalpost with the promise that you know there's going to be fulfillment or contentment or satisfaction or whatever. And then it's never achieved. It's just what's what's achieved is just more kind of like inducement into the rat race. You know, the perpetual motion machine goes on. And actually, the irony maybe is maybe there is some sense of, it wouldn't be contentment or satisfaction, but maybe like um, a placidness or that there's some sort of um, fulfillment i don't i don't even know what if there's a word to to adequately describe it but with what you were talking about making with like not trying to be too like nihilist and buddhist or something but that in the pursuit of that 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 is a good in itself that doesn't need to be justified by like happy emotions or something yeah i mean it's that 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 perverse notion that meaningful action is like eating french fries like you eat the french fries you get the pleasure yeah as if that's how all meaningful activity is constructed like do the thing get the pleasure at the end or something mm. well, those, yeah maybe meaningful action unsa- sucks sometimes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also like the unsatisfying thing about like that that last move of the s of, of of you know the essay that will um you know solve the political economy problem is it has to appeal to people who are currently existing within the present political economy and like they can't you know, and and so they want to preserve some of the nice things they get out of the exploitative system at the same time as getting the thing that would solve it. So it has to. So it's always like, yeah, if you squint, maybe this would kind of work, but it, it doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> like it's like ah, that seems a bit incomplete, but I'll take it for now because I still get to go and get like a coffee from a global supply chain down the road. Um, mm. Like there's that that kind of like this is you know the strange tension that you look at with like climate activism as well as of course like these people live in the world as it is and and the world they want to bring about would of course be one that I as a bourgeois academic type 
uh, don't particularly want to occupy. I don't want to be doing these kind of small scale farming projects to try and like get the most out of the the land in a way that's like ecologically sustainable. Like I don't, this isn't what I want out of life. I like these kind of urban experiences, but at the same time, maybe the me that is living through the mushroom zombie apocalypse would quite like that. Mm. <laughs> um, and I would, I would change who I am. I'm thinking of like, also like the third episode of, um, of the last of us show, right? There, there was the, you know, the, the couple with, um, uh, Marie was a Barrett and, uh, and, uh, uh, Nick Offerman, um, Nick Offerman like, one, yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, you know, the, you know, his 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 lover who arrives in his trap is a guy from the urban center who really wasn't imagining his life would turn out this way, but he transforms into someone who goes like, "This actually wasn't a bad life," hmm. as all lives hmm. that could go. You know, this wasn't this wasn't the plan, but actually, this was beautiful, and this hmm. was what love was, and what else could there be? <laughs> I will say this, I am fully aware of the irony that the next segment of our podcast is one where we recommend something that can give meaning to people in their lives and that we that we leave people on a positive note. Um so uh but with that said, uh we should probably wrap up this conversation and put another ellipsis so, yeah. and let's Let's not wait three years to have um, another conversation with you, Macon. No, no, it was really a pleasure. Um, it's 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 so it's so great to like uh, to to talk with you guys. It's also fun to like change the dynamic and like actually you know join in with the podcast I'm normally listening to. <laughs> <laughs> no, we yeah. really appreciate it, Macon. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, um, can I just do a little plug for my own podcast? Please, while I'm, uh, of course, the, please um, do. It's, it's, so I make a, a podcast with my very good friend Ebba, uh, Ebba Wester, who's a complete film nerd. It's called Projectopod. We talk with really great, great animated chemistry, um, pretty abstractly about mostly new releases um, as frequently as you can. Much like the kind of vibe of, of this show, just an open-ended conversation about what's in the cinema. We just did an episode about Poor Things, and we had a great time talking cool. about that. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, then um, the next time you got some thoughts on a film, uh, come yeah. on and, and, and we'll continue the conversation. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe I, I, I still haven't seen Killers of the Flower Moon. So fucking oh. hell. I need I know I know I need to see it. <laughs> so, you know, we did mention it. Um, so maybe we'll talk about yeah. the spanking, the paddle scene where uh, Leo goes <laughs> and gets gets spanked. Um, well, I think we I think we already have a date to talk about Alex Garland's Civil War when it comes out. Even oh, though it's terrible, it, yes. even more so. There oh, we let's go. do that. That's yeah, that'd be fantastic. That's the one. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fact. Locked in. Locked and loaded. Lovely. Okay. Awesome. All right, thanks so uh, much. Well, thanks guys. so much. Did you did you mention the name of the podcast? I I didn't catch it. It's oh sorry, it's called Projector Pod. So like we just project our pet little psychological and analytic gotcha. theories onto onto films. And films are projected Sick. with a projector. Awesome. Well we'll put a little link down in the show notes yeah. to it as well so people can uh, can have the name in front of them as well. So sick. Fantastic. All right, sick. So that was great. Um, so again, for everybody, thank you so much for uh, tuning into that talk. And thanks so much to Macon for coming on and chatting again. And um, just as a reminder, check out his pod. 
and um, check down in the show notes for a link to the article or the essay so that you can have a read of that and uh, check out some of his other stuff, his book that we discussed last time. And you know what? We're going to put all the links down in the show notes. All the links are in the show notes, so check that shit out. Um, but before we wrap things up, as I kind of hinted in the discussion, we are going to do the thing that, you know, we bemoaned in the episode where we're going to kind of like let you down with something nice and gentle and something that's going to make you feel good. But it's not always pleasure, right? Like pursuits of things that are meaningful are not always just simple pleasure impulses. So, but anyway, it's time for the sticky leaves. It's where the segment of, or it's the segment of the show where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, what is uh, driving you forward at the moment? So, I just finished um, the FX show Reservation Dogs. You haven't seen it, right? I don't think we've ever talked about it. I have not even heard of it. Oh, really? Oh, wait. No, I have. Oh, I, I, we did. You, did you mention it to me? Uh, I mean, makes sense that I would, yeah. I have heard of this. I have not seen it, though. I have yeah. heard of this, though. Yeah, so Reservation Dogs is a TV show. It just um, completed its three-season run on FX. Its uh, series finale was a, uh, a couple months ago, I think, but I was a little behind. Uh, created by Sterling Harjo. Uh, I think Taika Waititi is also like a co-creator, although he, I don't think, worked every day um, on the set or anything, as Sterling Harjo did. And it's about... Um, it's ostensibly about four uh, teenagers who live on a reservation in Oklahoma and it's kind of a, you know, um, coming of age story with them. One of their best friends, uh, dies, um, and they have to sort of deal with, uh, uh, grief associated with that life on the reservation, whether or not they want to leave and go into the big city, wherever that may be. And they end up, um, at one point traveling to Los Angeles to uh, um, sort of process the grief since their, their, their friend who had passed away, that was sort of his dream. Um, and there's a lovely, uh, in that, sorry, there's a lovely um, cameo by Brandon Boyd of Incubus. So if you want to throw oh, it back no to shit. the 90s, um, Brandon Boyd as Incubus. Uh, I'll just say this is not a spoiler because it's, it's, it's doesn't tell you anything about how this happens, but he plays Jesus in a way. Okay. Um, so that should should um, give you something to look forward to if you want to watch this show. <laughs> I, I I love this series, and I'm not going to talk a whole bunch more about the plot or anything. But um, this series is being celebrated in in large part because of the um, sort of um, the fact that it shows uh, Native American life on the reservation in a way that sort of is isn't um, seen very often in popular cinema or, or TV shows, and that's certainly true. I think that the the value and the uniqueness of this series is way beyond even just that, though. Um, mm. What I love about this series is that it not only does it have these incredible, well built out, depthful characters, these four kids, and the surrounding characters in the in the reservation are, are also um, hilarious and amazing, and they all have their own storylines that make you feel intensely and deeply about all of them and love them all um, with such, hold them all in such deep regard. But what's especially, I think, unique about the show is that it's not explicitly political about anything, really. And yet I find it to be strongly kind of critical um, of contemporary 
political economy, even without ever mentioning anything to do with political economy. It's, it's very anti-capitalist without ever mentioning capitalism in a certain way. Mm. And I think where a lot of that comes from is just, it's a celebration of community. And a, and a big part of the series is the kids coming to terms with the fact that they grew up in this community, even though it has lots of problems and even though there's lots of suffering and oppression involved for the people in these communities, the community itself is so valuable to them. And they come to love the people in their community, mm. um, despite their flaws, despite all the things they could gain by, you know, leaving, going to the big city. And 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 in the end, some people do leave and engage in opportunities elsewhere, and some stay. So it's not sort of um, fixating only on like, well, you have to stay here because you owe something to your community or whatever. Instead, instead of thinking about that in terms of mere duty or obligation, it's more about showcasing the beauty of this community and these people right for who mm. with all their foibles intact right it's a really beautiful encapsulation of of this sort of thing and you know there's this there's a strong tendency and it's, it's shared i think by both sides of the political spectrum in america that like there's a kind of obligation to go where the economic development is and you know republicans even say mm. this explicitly i think paul ryan actually said this at one point like there's a moral obligation of young people to go where the economic development is. That's sort of what capitalism, the kind of moral obligations that capitalism generates for young people to sort of perpetuate the system, right? To make it work. And that's, that. it's always struck me as heinous to think that way, right? As if like economic development is more important than your loved ones and where they are, right? And that doesn't mean that's like wrong to like leave your family and your community. Both of us did that, right? We're both nowhere near um, uh, our family and many of our loved ones, right? Um, but instead to like, there, there's a kind of tragedy in that, right? That there is something about mm-hmm. like the place where you grew up and the place that formed you and the people who made you who you are. Um, there's a beauty in living with them, right? And a beauty in, um, and a value in uh, like, staying with staying with those people and in that area right and and contributing towards that and not in like a you know like an ugly kind of blood and soil kind of way like you again like you like that's the only thing that matters or like you have a duty to do that or anything but just to recognize that and not let the fact that um in contemporary life the ease of transport um makes it easy to sort of you know go and live somewhere else and do something different don't make and the allure of like having a new life and no longer you know, being um, in the place where you grew up and maybe there's a lot of, you know, hangups or trauma associated with that. And all those things are true, right? And real. But then just being able to sort of reject that vision of the new and the different and the unique and the the, the area where you have complete control of your life and where you can start over, right? And no longer have all the stuff you had when you were growing up. Like to reject that and to recognize the beauty of one's own community. I thought... The show did an amazing mm. job at that uh, without sort of falling into some of the tropes that, you know, fetishizing that sort of thing could fall into. Um, that's all pretty abstract. Maybe it doesn't make sense if you haven't watched the show, but um, I think this is a, it's a pretty universally beloved series, I think. Um, very critically acclaimed, although it's not terribly popular from what I can tell. And yet mm. everyone, that, everyone I know who's watched it raves about it. Um, so, mm. Yeah. 
great series, Reservation Dogs on FX. I don't know if it's available on streaming or anything like that right now, although I think FX is kind of associated with Hulu. So if you have Hulu, you can probably get access to Reservation Dogs too. So check One it out. One of the characters' names is Alora Dannon. Yeah, yeah. Like from Willow? Oh, is that a character from Willow? Yeah, that's the baby in Willow, Alora Dannon. Oh, I did not remember that. I wonder if there's some sort of significance. The baby is the baby's kind of left like um, kind of like Moses in a basket kind of situation, and then gets picked up and rescued by um, by Willow and his family. That does. And then happen. it turns out that oh, and then it turns out that Alora Dannon is kind of like this powerful sorceress that's gonna like defeat the evil queen Bavmorda. Oh, interesting. And she does. No, there, there, there's definitely a through line there because uh, I think Alora's mm. mother passed away when she was young, and she's—I can't remember the exact the exact story. But yeah, there's a, there's a kind of orphanedness for her. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, fuck. So I still got to watch the curse and now Reservation Dogs. <laughs> and there's I'm some magical realism the in it too. So if you're into that, I stuff. love that. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I feel like I've heard of it, um, but because when you mentioned it, I was like, I, I was like, no. And then, and then when I started typing it, I was like, oh no, wait a second. I've absolutely heard of this before, but I don't remember where or from whom. So, sick, sick. Well, um, that's a good note for us to say goodbye for now. On so, thank you everybody for tuning in once again to another episode of Owls at Dawn and sticking with us. We love you. Thanks to our patrons, our old and our new. Thank you for those who have recommended episode topics. Please keep uh, keep sending them in. Run over to patreon.com slash dawn where you can support us and then where you can recommend episode topics. And uh, you can hit us up on Twitter, Insta. You can email us, owlsatdawnpodcast at gmail.com just to say what up. And um, I think that's pretty much it. Nothing else we've got to cover unless there's anything that I forgot to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Fadani, Americanski.